again, and I want to appreciate the Lord. Heavenly Father, I appreciate you. Wouldn't seem right if we didn't sing that song. I try to get it done about wherever I minister, and some people don't know it, and some people don't sing it the way I do. But uh, you all know it, and let's appreciate the Lord for just a few minutes. Heavenly Father, I appreciate you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Bow in your presence, Lord. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, I appreciate you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's sing it again, and if you just lift your arms or your heart or whatever, and really appreciate him this morning. That's, that's so many things to be thankful for. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, I love you. Heavenly Father. Oh, I just love you, Jesus. Hallelujah. I just love you, Lord. Hallelujah. Can you tell him you love him? I adore you. Bow in your presence. Heart, mind, soul, and body. Hallelujah. You may be seated. I want to ask my wife if she'd leave her testimony. She's been gallivanting all over the country with men of our age. That's not easy. And so I want her to just leave her testimony. God's been good to us, and he's blessed us, and he's kept us, and we're healthy. Funny thing is, though, everybody here's got older. Can't, can't imagine that. Brother Dick's getting gray-headed. Brother Ralph back there is gray-headed, Sister Melba. Brother Jim still doesn't have any hair. Brother Paul Hayden not doing much better. Wig just looks the same. Stays the same. But anymore when I look in the mirror, I don't even know who I see. It's a stranger to me. Stand up. Still so soon. 
that's right. Amen. We never make no attempt to escape the fact that this is part of us. We're part of you and you're part of us. There's no doubt in my mind God has changed my ministry, a lot of things we're doing that's just there for a little season and then we go somewhere else and that's not easy. We'd like to find some place and sit down and be comfortable there. But whatever we can do to accomplish the will of God is what is necessary. This morning I have the word for you and I have a word for you. I have the word which is the Logos of God which is for whosoever will and then I have a word which is a rhema which is a word especially for you. There's no doubt in my mind that Jesus is still coming. It doesn't make any difference what people say or what churches don't believe it or how comfortable we get in the fact that we'll settle down for a little while. Jesus is coming. Now the biggest thing that was wrong with his first coming was nobody recognized the forerunner. And so consequently nobody recognized Jesus when he came. Now everybody's going to know him when he comes this time. But unless we learn to realize what the forerunner that immediately precedes the coming of Jesus is going to be like, a lot of people is going to be sitting comfortable in their situation and miss being able to greet Jesus with a hallelujah on their lips. And I want to read to you from St. Luke, the third chapter, about five verses. And then I want to speak on that for a few moments this morning. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetarch of Aturia and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the Tetarch of Abilene, Anus and Caiaphas being the high priest, 
The word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Esaias the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain, and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now that's quite a prophecy. When we look at that, some 30 years of this writing has passed since the birth of the son of an old age had filled the house of Zacharias with rejoicing. Zacharias and his wife had died, and the son which so much was prophesied about from the lips of Zacharias himself and was called a prophet of the highest had been a recluse in the desert. No one had heard anything from him, only he was living a life of a hermit. Away from the traditions and the religious clamor of those days. He was receiving his instructions. For when his day would come holy from his lonely communions with God. I want you to follow me where I'm going. He was learning his truths from the great temple of nature and not from the great fine edifices of humanity. There was a vocation before this man called John the Baptist filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb for work. That was at this time beginning to stir within his spirit. I stand there after reading that and become aware that there must have been a lot of lonely hours for this man called John the Baptist. There must have been a lot of times when he in deep consecration and study and communing with God had wondered, is my time ever going to come? As he watched humanity roll from one crisis to another, as he watched religious assemblies come and go and disintegrate, as he watched his own beloved nation as it began to seemingly go down the tube or go down the drain, and this man knowing inside of him all the time that he had a message that that nation needed only to be kept on the backside of the desert by the great power and presence of the God that he served. I stand there a lot of times and wonder, and I'm sure John rose up during the night and a lot of times of the day. I'm sure he looked up to the heavens and said, God, is it not time yet? Can I not go forth with what I have burning inside of me? Only to hear God say, not yet, John. The time is not yet. I think there's a lesson in that. I think we need to recognize that God does have a time. That things have to get just right before the minds of the people can comprehend and before God sends on the scene something that would either send them away from the thing 
or bring them into the things. Mankind has to be moved from his complacency. Mankind has to be moved from religious traditions, idiocracies and idiosyncrasies. And he's got to stand before his God and say, God, what now? What can I do? When is it time to move? Is it time to move? And all at the same time keep his courage wrapped up inside of him to know that God is not wasting humanity. And John stood, no telling how many days. Everybody said, well, Zacharias sure bombed out on that prophecy, didn't he? Here he was talking about a child and the Most High God and all the things he said John was supposed to do. And you don't find him in the temple. You don't find him going around preaching to people. Where do you find this man? You find him out by himself on his knees alone with God trying to find out exactly when he's supposed to appear on the scene. Friend, let me tell you something. That's where God has his last day ministry this very time. It's there holding on to God, waiting for the time, watching individuals come and go, and seeing churches crowned with holiness, and then watch them disintegrate, and they stand there with a burden burning in their soul, and say, God, let me go. And God says, not yet. Not yet, John. Not yet. And then if you can, wake up with me, with John, one morning. Raise up and smell the freshness of the dew from heaven. As John stands up and thinking, perhaps this will just be another day. And then something's different. The birds are singing a little bit different. Air's a little bit easier to breathe. The animals that he's associated with uh, seem to be anticipating something. And this day is different. And John looks up. And the power of God moves upon him, filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. And God says, it's time to go, John. Now's the time. Now's the area. It's time. You can go now, John. And go he does. But not at all like you would picture our, a prophetic figure. You see, this is what's happening to the world. I'm not necessarily getting down on everything that happens on television. But I am saying this, friend, that's not your answer. That is not solving the world's problems. That is not getting God the glory that He wants. God's got something else. But sometimes when you watch them, as they're glaring and brazenly on television, almost telling you, and if you're not following them, you're not going to make it. Almost with their spectacularism, saying that this is the only way. All at the same time, God's got somebody back there being schooled by the power of the Holy Spirit that's not going to look like them or talk like them or walk like them or be like them. And God's going to say when they've tried it all, then you try it. Let's look at John. Here come a man with no pretext. What I mean by that is John was what John was. He didn't try to be anybody else or anything else. He was just John, just what God said he was. I'll have to tell you one thing. This boy has wrestled for years trying to be somebody else. 
And then finally when I succumbed to the fact that I was me and that's all I was and God knew what I was and knew where it was going when He called me and I decided to be me, the glory of God then moved upon me. And when we decide to be us, then God can use us. But when we try to be something for somebody else and to suit everybody else, God can't use us. And John learned in the school, came out with no pretext as a simple man. Watch him, no phylacteries and no fringes about him. That would be indicative of priesthood or leaders at all. He had no soft clothing or no signs of luxurious culture or living. In other words, completely opposite to what the religious world had been brought to expect by his leadership. All this man had for dress was a skin of a camel thrown around him and held together by a leather band. And can you imagine somebody coming out, entering in the door of the apostolic church of Rosie Claire, dressed like that? Would we be ready to receive what he had to say, or would we? Now, I'm not telling you that a person oughtn't to dress nice. I think what I'm trying to say is let's see what the message is and forget about who the messenger is. His sole nourishment was honey that he gathered from the moorlands and was locust steeped with water and dried in the sun. And this is what I like about John. He wants nothing that the world can give to him. He fears nothing that the world can do to him. He can stand alone, for God is with him his only source. In other words, he had the ability to lay the axe at the root of the tree without fear or favor of anybody, without anybody saying, Son, you filled your last time in this pulpit. You get out of there. John was John, and he laid the axe at the root of the tree, and he said what God told him to say, and he wasn't afraid of what the world could do to him. Friend, we need that today. And we need people that will sit and listen to it today. It's the only thing that's going to prepare people for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we can sit on our haunches. We can rest on our laurels. We can live over what's done in the past as long as we want to. That friend God is getting ready to change the situation. God is getting ready to move upon hearts. And if He can't move upon yours or mine, He'll move upon somebody somewhere. And here He steps. I want you to notice the condition of humanity when John came. Parallel almost exactly to what it is today. Let's notice some of the names that was there. Tiberius, a low, dull, sottish despot. Exactly what he was. Pontius Pilate, indolent, overbearing, and greedy. Let's look at Herod, disgracing his rulership and his position by open lasciviousness. Okay? You know anybody that does that in this day and hour? Look at Caiaphas and Anus, disputing for the priesthood which neither one of them was worthy to have. And it was this type of world, had this lonely man, that had been on the backside of the desert, stepped forth from his retreat, and he looked it all over. I'm wondering sometimes if God would call us now and we're not ready, and we step out and look on this type of a world, and God says, there it is, preach them something that they need, 
I'm sure if we're not careful, we'd run right back into our safe retreat and our little desert island and say, God, I want nothing to do with this world. But John had something inside of him burning. John had a position to fill. John had a message to proclaim. God had a Messiah that he had to introduce. Friend, we're standing on the threshold, the precipice of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and whether we realize it or not, from somewhere, someplace, God has got to have a forerunner that will introduce the coming of the Messiah with power and with great glory. And He's not going to do it with people as selfish, that people that's indulging in their own lust and their flesh, that's sitting back self-satisfied with where they are and what they're doing. He's got to do it with a people that's dissatisfied, that's anxious, that's concerned about the world and about the coming of the Lord and wants to get to them before the powers of hell destroy them. God's looking for a church that's burning with fervency and burning with fire, that's concerned about themselves and about humanity. In other words, God wants somebody to come out of the wilderness, unschooled by human uh, schools and seminars, unprotected by the religious world, and coming out of it like John and viewing this thing. And then he stands and he looks at it. I like to stand there. I I like to be with my characters. I get a lot out of it. I'm standing there when God is dealing with me with this message. I'm standing there as John comes out and he views where he's going to have to preach. God's already told him those names. He's come out of there. And then kindly reminding us a little bit of Elijah the Tishbite who stepped out of nowhere and confronted Ahab. The son of Zacharias begins his message not with honeyed phrases, not with compromises, and he begins it with thundering tones, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was leveling his message at outwardly religious people. Amen, Brother Hoskall. He was leveling his message at the supposedly church of that day as he says, with his message so unpopular, and it still is today, as he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What happens most of the time when you tell relatively religious people to repent? They rebel, don't they? They say, we've got nothing to repent of. Boy, you've been out there in that wilderness and desert all that time, and we've been holding up the post of this God's house. And you come in here and tell us to repent. And they forgot one thing. This was God's man with God's message to introduce God Himself veiled in the flesh. And humanity could do nothing but listen. I want you to look a little bit at me at how disappointing this could have been. Okay? Looking at Isaiah 43 and 5, and you just read that, but I'm going to... Uh, look on down, looking at this beautiful prophecy concerning the voice of cry, one crying in the wilderness. And this is some of the results that's supposed to be. Filling every valley. Bringing low every mountain. The crooked made straight. And the glory of the Lord to be revealed. Now can you imagine the thoughts of individuals that they look at this man that says he's going to do this. Well, that uncouth 
ugly looking individual doesn't even have on a priest robe. He doesn't have a card. He doesn't belong to an organization. He's not even been to college. And he's going to do all of this. And when we look at it and really see who he is, we can't help but be disappointed. Because we're being introduced to a rough preacher of the desert. He doesn't look good. And not only that, he just doesn't sound good. He doesn't have all these long words that nobody understands. He doesn't have the complete sentences that nobody knows what he says after he said it, and he probably doesn't. All he has is rough looking and the utter sharp sentences aiming at the very spiritual heart and core of individuals that need it. He doesn't know any other way to do this. Yet in this preacher, and in his message, the prediction was fulfilled God's way. Not man's way, but God's way. And there is something we need to realize. Don't let no man uh, despise the poverty of the instrument. We judge man by the way we see him. But look, don't let anybody... Don't let anybody despise the poverty of the instrument. The excellency is of the power of God that indwells that individual. And friend, this church world is sitting on the verge of a complete change. Okay? We've set... And we've had our religious ceremonies and services our way. We have done it as we pleased and when we pleased. And we rested on our laws and merits. And God, in a sense, has been pleased with that. And that's all right because the religious leaders of that day did the same thing until God looked on the backside of the desert and said, John, get out of there. It's time I was to present them with my power and not rituals and traditions of man. Now whether you know it or not, this forerunner that is coming now is not one man, but it's going to be basically just like this. Amen? We're not going to recognize this ministry by its finery. We're not going to recognize it by its honeyed phrases and, and flattering words. He's going to be just like John. He's going to point a finger at the hypocrite and at the individual that seeks to hide himself and of the repentant sinner and of the self-righteous Christian and even the individual that's trying his best. He's going to point a finger and say repentance is necessary. And he's going to call us out of all of this. This man called John the Baptist lit another chapter and printed it in bringing man back to God. And the people standing there recalling the image of Elijah, hearing again the long silence of God's Spirit speaking. I don't know about you, but I, I feel good in churches. Sometimes I feel a tingle of the Holy Spirit. There's times I feel like dancing. Other times I feel like crying. 
But I want you to know something way down inside of me. There's a longing for a power that would challenge this life. There's a longing for the power of God that would dig down inside of me and curse this flesh and raise the spirit out and let us have its way. There's times when I'm just not satisfied with where I am or what God allows me to stay. And I'm not satisfied without the sick being healed and the lame walking and the blind seeing and the move of the Holy Spirit of God. I'm not satisfied with where I'm at. And you shouldn't be either. And it's easy to get complacent, I know. I think perhaps that's why God's got me trotting from one place to another. I'm so easy to get complacent. I told my wife, there's just one thing I've never learned. And I'm honest with it, and I know where to go. I just never know when to leave. And sometimes you can stay so long that what you try to do seems to have a spot on it. I've asked God some way, not only show me where to go, show me how long to stay, what I should do there. And I know this one thing, there's a spirit inside of me stirring. I'm not satisfied with what I see in the churches I go in. And I could sit back and I, I could be disappointed. And there's one thing inside of me. Every time I am, God opens this to me. And He says, oh yes, but the greatest is yet to come. It hasn't happened yet. And the people come because he was so different. Some come because they were hungry. Others came to criticize. Others just came to see. But they came trembling. They came awestruck around that strange, uncouth-looking prophet or man. And he preaches. And while he preaches, there's such authority in the word that they have to listen. Of the most sanctimonious to the haughtiest soldier, to the corrupt politician, his anointed message reached down into their soul and serves them. I say this, God, Brother Butch, Brother Bud, all you ministers, I say, God, some way don't let us be satisfied. Let us get so much authority of God that we'll create a revival or a riot that we'll make people glad or we'll make them mad one of the two that they can't just come and sit complacent and leave the same way they come in. God, some way get in our spirit and let us stir the individuals. I'm sure there was a question in a lot of their minds. Can this be the dawn of the Messiah's day? This man was different. His blazing eyes were searching the soul. He looks through all the appearances of sham of his age and sees how hollow and insignificant those lives are as they're trying to fool humanity and trying to fool God. He has been communing with unseen realities. To him, heaven and hell is not someplace way out there. Heaven and hell was something that was encompassing men and women right then. And friend, if we can ever get to that place to realize hell is not in the distant future, neither is heaven, and it's encompassing us now, it's coming and it's destroying or it's saving right now. But he was possessed with a word which came to him, and he was beyond all regions of fear. Smiles or frowns didn't matter to him. Sometimes the level of our ministry all of us depends on whether people look interested, whether they frown, or whether they smile. 
But it didn't matter to John what they did. They could grit their teeth. They could get up and walk out on him. I didn't daunt his spirit at all. He had a message. He had something to humanity. And if they didn't want to hear it, that was fine with him. But he had to deliver it. God grant a ministry of today that type of atmosphere and that type of authority and that type of power to lay the axe at the root of the tree whether humanity was listening or not and not gauge the success of their messages by how many people went away patting them on the back or smiling in self-confidence as he with their syrupy phrases patted them on the back and told them they're going to make it. Going to be a lot of people very disappointed when Jesus comes. If we don't realize what we're going to have to look, this man, this man was not the eloquence of dress. He wasn't the eloquence of speech. But he had one thing that's needed today. He was the eloquence of action. He was moved by that which was in him. He's a man in earnest. And a man in earnest won't trifle with rhetoric. All right? He has no time to hunt for metaphors or tropes. Life's too short. He has to find the shortest way into human consciousness. And he's got to drive home the Word of God to save us all. He can't worry about whether his his language is just right or not. Whether he's saying it just right to suit people. He can't even worry about whether they misunderstand him or not. Because you've got all types of people ready to just tear a message apart. And use whatever they want to use the way they want to use it. And distort the rest of it. And John the Baptist could cure less what they did with his word. It was God's Word, and He was giving it to them. There wasn't any play acting. There wasn't any surfing around. He didn't diaper any 50-year-old babies, and He didn't give the bottles to those who were 75 years old. He laid it out the way it was supposed to be laid out. And friend, this is a coming type of ministry. Whether it comes from me or Brother Butch or somebody else, somewhere, sometime in the very near future, you're going to be faced with that and have a bony finger of God's prophet pointing you in the face and you're going to have to answer according to your conscience and the conviction that that message gets in your heart. In other words, you're not going to be able to dwell in your sealed houses while the house of God lies waste and do your thing while the world goes to hell. You're going to be challenged to either move or get off. One of the two. I enjoyed the message Brother Bush preached Wednesday night. And time and time again, this assembly has been called to the very edge of the promised land. And pardon me if I begin to get where, get the old, old-time host claw who was always getting down on people. But friend, listen, let me tell you something. There's something here for us. God knows it. God loves us. God's reached down. He set it before us. And He's not going to be satisfied until we get out and get with it and get what belongs. There's a world out here that needs God. And it needs you. And God wasn't just playing around when He told you what you could be and what He wanted you to be. God wasn't just telling stories or fairy tales. He was trying to tell you. I'll get to that with a word in a minute. He was trying to tell you that one of the greatest things that could happen to this world could begin right 
here if you wanted to. He laid the axe at the root of the tree. Now there wasn't any time for clippings. There wasn't any time for prunings. There wasn't any time to trim this or get ready to prepare for root today. At this time that fruit should appear, it was time for the fruit. Wash you and make you clean, he says. Put away the evil of your doings. Cease to do evil and learn to do well. I thought as I looked at that, perhaps when the doctors of theology, perhaps when the modern day Pharisees and Sadducees, when all the promotions and gimmicks, have done their thing and churches have filled for a moment and emptied out just like they were filled. Promotions of sensationalism where you've got to live on the very edge of sensationalism before you can live for God. Our miracle workers all those who feel like they're God's gift of humanity when all of these have tried and failed to attract man to God God's going to say to those on the back side of the desert has went to him and said, God, is it time now? It's burning in my soul and I've got to get it out. And God says, no, just a little while. He's going to motion to them and said, it's time now. Humanity has lost. Everything else hasn't worked. Humanity needs something. Now you get out and you lay the axe at the root of the tree and you let the chips fall where they may. And what you salvage and what you get will be what I will use in the new day that's dawning. Proclaim it, he says. Proclaim it. Now, I don't think that that's years from now. I would even go so far and dare say that probably this type of ministry is emerging and is, is in its infancy. I've been around and I've watched all of this that I mentioned and I've watched it fail. I'm right in the middle of something right now unless I can change it some way. Unless God give me the grace, it's not going to work. Priorities are all mixed up. There seem to be no way that they can get God first. Everything else is first. God's elevated to second or third. And all of the promotion, we've got all types of teams lined out that ought to work. Evangelistic teams, intercessory prayer teams, uh, uh, survey teams, and helps teams, and teaching, and the whole bit is going on in a town of thousands. An edifice that cost $850,000 to build, that holds 700 or better people. Now, if this could do the job, it would get done there. But that's not doing the job. Of all of these things that's happening, God has been put back here someplace and man can't recognize he's got to be first. That's why I say this and I'm saying it not to build you up that you know how to be a base. You know how to be humble. You know how to live over what God gives you and give what belongs to Him as far as money is concerned. And God's just simply saying, hey look, get on your knees. Uh, accept reproof and rebuke and don't rebel against it. Lift your hands to heaven and become a part of that. That's going to announce the dawning of a new day and to move out past the walls of this church and this town and community and get it where I want it into the heart of people 
into the heart of people. I've got to close. I'm suffering with a sore throat. I've got to preach tonight. And I've got about eight or ten more meetings. God does still talk to me. Now, I know it'll be hard for some of you to believe that, but He does. God's talked to me for years. He shows me things and He tells me things. Some things that He's showed me and I've told here has happened, others haven't yet. But they will. But I was reading God's Word. I've carried this around for a while. And I thought, God, I, I don't... Really, I wasn't necessarily thinking. My desk was piled up that high with things I was supposed to do. My wife's grandmother was real bad. They was having their dedication at the new sanctuary there. The desk was piled up that high, and I was trying to contact people and get a hold of people. And I laid my head on my desk, and my head was hurting. And something whispered and said, Go to Revelation, the 16th chapter, the third verse, and just read the first portion of it. And this is what it says. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophets. Then it tells you here what's going on. And without thinking of all, the reason I know it's a word, it's the rhema, a word. You know, there is a difference between the word. Somebody said, well, stand on the word. That's fine. But sometimes God has a word for a congregation or for an individual. I always said that I can, I can read in the Word, this would be applicable to me as well as a million others, but when God gives me a definite Word, that's mine. And He let me know that the three unclean spirits would be spirits that would attack physically, spirits that would attack financially, spirits would attack spiritually. Physically, financially, and spiritually. And he said, always, when the enemy... You see, the devil's not dumb. Next to God, he's probably the smartest thing alive. And he's like God. He's not disorderly. You see, all this he learned from God. So whatever the devil does... Now, he don't just haphazardly do something. He sets the stage. He's just as orderly as he can be because he learned that from God. And so what is happening here and what is going to happen, and God just more or less spoke it into my, into my very being. You see, the devil has always set his attack. He gets his armies ready. He pinpoints where he's going to attack. He pinpoints what he's going to do and who he's going to do it to, and where it can most weaken God's cause. See, this has always been. Okay? Now then, what has happened and you put her down? The devil has pinpointed this community. He's already started in a little bit. He's just stealers, though. It's just an advanced force. Okay? In other words, what I'm trying to say without scaring you to death is you haven't shown anything yet. Okay? And he has pinpointed this area for an assault. His, and whenever he goes into an area, 
as he always does, he'll pick out the church that has the most influence in the community and has the truth. That could be one, two, or half a dozen. And then he begins to work in that assembly. He begins to plague financially. He begins to plague spiritually. And he begins to plague physically. Whichever one. Sometimes a person can endure physical ailments easier than he can endure a financial setback. Whichever one would be the hardest on the individual is what he does. And he set his course of attack and earmarked this community and particularly this church for his assault. And you're going to see it probably worse than you've ever, ever saw it before. Okay. That's not to say that you've got to drop down and say, Oh, woe is me. God lets him do this to see if you've got what it takes to get yourself together and get division out of there and find unity for one another. And where one is weak, you be strong. And get this thing and bind together and resist that power and bring forth this church and this community in the power and the glory of God. And if you do, you're on your way. If not, the devil has dealt a death blow to your community. Now, you can believe it if you want to, but I know wherever I speak, you're going to need help from one another. You cannot be complacent. And the most of the time, all the time, he begin on those that are most needed. Okay? God's still good. But there is cause for prayer. Because he's got you earmarked. He's got you tagged. He's going to stop you. If he can. He's going to discourage you. If you're not careful, he have you sitting home. He has some already. If you're not careful, you're going to, have, going to be walling around in sicknesses that you can't get rid of. Financial ailments. He'll run you off from here. Because he tells you you can't live here. He's done that already. But he's just started. It's just a force. It's just, just kind of like this. Give a little forerunner. This, let's hit it and see what happens. And like I said, you can do it. I want you to stand.